0: This is the Hope Church Mill Creek podcast and you're hearing the voice of lead pastor Josh Westmoreland. Hope Church Mill Creek is a church replant in the Hope Church family based out of Danville, Virginia. Our church specifically is in Roxboro, North Carolina, just about an hour north of Durham. Our family of Hope Churches has a total of 13 locations at this time along the Virginia-North Carolina border mostly in smaller our uh, specific location has existed officially since January 22, when my family and I moved from Mississippi to lead this plant. We hope you enjoy this podcast and bring something away from it that helps you. If you do, it would help us greatly if you left a good review on Apple Podcast or you just, you know, shared it. We wish you all the best, uh, grace and peace to all of you, and happy listening.
1: So we are talking about this month in all of the Hope Churches. We're talking about Christ as God's gift to us and the things that God has given us through Christ. Last week uh, I heard Josh speak on recon- it was reconciliation, was it not? Okay, good. I got the right big Bible word. I have a short Bible word we'll be talking about today: mercy. Um, When I think of God's gift of Christ, especially Christmas time, mercy isn't usually what comes to mind to me. I'm usually thinking about grace. I'm thinking about grace in terms of getting something good that I don't deserve. That's my understanding of grace. God gives us something that we we should never get. We're never worthy of having the gift of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that pours abundantly through him. I think of grace. Does God show me mercy? Or has he shown me mercy? And so as I've been studying this text, uh, as I've been studying for this, it's actually taken me to a text I didn't expect. When I look at grace, grace is getting something good you don't deserve. Mercy, my understanding of mercy, is not getting something bad, when you do deserve it. So usually that's that's going to be some form of punishment. But the text we're going to look at today takes a different angle on mercy that has had me absolutely confused for the last couple of weeks as I've been studying this out. So our text today is familiar. Um, It's familiar to anyone who's spent time in church, and even the Easter and Christmas crowd. Y'all know who I'm talking about there? Y'all know the Easter Christmas folks? Okay, no, no harm, no foul there too. If you come to church twice a year, you're probably not gonna hear about the day that the sun stood still in the sky twice a year. You're probably not gonna hear about uh, the Valley of the Bones you're not going to hear that one likely, and you're probably not going to hear about that shipwreck in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul and a bunch of prisoners were on a boat and this big storm swept through and it broke the ship to bits, but all of the prisoners, they survived and made it to land. I doubt you're going to hear that one. Likely, if you come uh, come to be a part of church twice a year, you're going to hear something about an empty tomb, you're going to hear something about a baby in a manger, Or you might hear something, I don't think I can get three of them up at the same time. Okay. Or you're going to hear, that's hard. Or you're going to hear something maybe about angels sharing good news to shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks by night. So if you had to pick a list that you're familiar with from church, is it list one or list two? List one was the valley of the bones, sun, sand, and still, and the shipwreck. List two, empty tomb. Uh, Baby in a Manger, Shepherds at Night. What's your list? Well, What have you heard more among church? Two. We're going to be on a two list again today. So I'm going to be talking to you from list two. Now, if you are one of those people who's part of church twice a year, uh, don't feel bad, you're in good company. This is my second time here this year. So <laughs> next time it'll be your turn to preach. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that to you. Um, if you're using a paper or a digital Bible though today, please go ahead and turn or tap to the book of Luke chapter one. We'll be in the book of Luke chapter one. And with some blessing, we have those verses available, uh, to no lack of difficulty there. Thank you so much for providing us the word of God. And before we get into this, I'm going to ask to pray over God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing us your word, for giving us a means to find out more about you. Please bless your word today. We know it goes forth and does what you say it's going to do. We know that it will accomplish your will. Um, I ask you to keep me out of its way. Um, help me to share it appropriately. Lord, please don't let me lead the people in a direction that's wrong, but help me to point them towards you. And we thank you, Lord, for this time together in, in your service. It's in your name we pray, sir. Amen. Um, I want to remind you all that familiarity with the Bible should never stop us from studying it. And so when we get to these these texts that we tend to look at at certain times of year, that's not a bad thing. It's not bad for us to look at certain texts over and over and over again. We Christians study the Bible so that we can learn more about God, so that we can love him more, and so that we can be more like him. And that is his plan for his people, to be conformed to the image of Christ. These things happen best in the context of familiarity. Now I've been studying the Bible for about twenty years, and I bet you that's a drop in the bucket compared to some folks in this room. Anybody been studying the Bible for more than twenty years? Few of you okay, if there's a few people older than me who've been who've been saved longer than me, I'm a late comer to the game, frankly. I really didn't start studying the Bible till I was close to thirty years old, a little under, but um I mean, I'm not under 30 now. I'm saying I was a little under 30 then. Y'all, y'all know better. I'm not gonna not. He's up there lying in church. No, no. <laughs> Just a little bit. Um, not a little bit of lying. No, that's a drop in the bucket, I know, to many of you. And I've read the, through these verses many times. And yet today, to me, they're new. And so I'm hoping that's gonna happen for you also. We're gonna look at a large text. That doesn't mean we're going to study every single verse of a large text at the same depth. So, number one, don't be scared. Number two, there will still be food at the restaurant when I let you go. They're not going to run out of food. We're going to be okay. But I'm not going to keep you in here too terribly long with this. So we're going to read the verses first, and then we're going to go back and look at specific portions of the text. I'm going to read Luke 1, 26 through 56. And then a small portion at the end, 68 to 75, Luke chapter one. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God.' and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her For her who was called barren, for with God nothing shall be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, And then the final portion, we see the father Zacharias. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the, beginning, since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our fathers Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. So there are three scenes that we're going to be looking through, and I'm not going to go through all of them at that depth. There's, it's beautiful to hear the word of God. It's just beautiful to hear the spoken word of God. When the Apostle Paul says, take unto yourselves the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, that's not a command to carry your Bible around with you. That's the spoken word. That's a command to actually say the word of God out loud. And when we hear it, there's a different strength in it than when we just look at it on the page. Amen? Amen. There are three scenes that we're going to be looking at that covered about three months' time. The whole chapter, in fact, is about nine months long. The first scene was the angel Gabriel speaking with Mary. The second scene was Mary's arrival at Elizabeth's house. And the third scene is the birth of John. Uh, John the uh John the Baptist, he was known as a cousin of Jesus, or at least a kinsman of Jesus and Zacharias' prophecy. Zacharias was his father. And I wanted to look at the thing that the angel says versus the response of everybody else to this wonderful message of grace. In Luke chapter 1 verse 28, the angel, it says, having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When he calls her highly favored one, he's using the Greek word that we know for grace. It's charis or charity. Grace being being given something lavish and abundant and just above and beyond whatever could be needed. And the angel says to Mary that she is highly favored. This was troubling to Mary. That's what our text says. Now, When you think about this and what that may have meant to Mary, this favor that she was experiencing would not have been material favor. The angel wasn't saying, congratulations, you're rich now, you're going to have a baby and you won the lottery. He's not saying that. There's no speaking of riches. And we know from later on in another text that when Jesus was born, they actually gave the poorest of offerings. Because Mary and Joseph didn't have a lot of money. Jesus was born into poverty. It, that's, that's, hard to, that's hard to imagine for me, that the Lord of all creation was born into poverty, but that was the plan of God through the ages. The other thing that strikes me about this, the Bible says that when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. She wasn't troubled that she just saw an angel. Now think about that. An angel shows up and starts telling her, and she's like, what'd he say? What'd he say? She was greatly troubled at the saying, not the presence of one of God's holy angels, one of his high angels, Gabriel. No, she was troubled that he greeted her like this. And so the angel doubles down in verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There's that word again. And she's still not getting it. Um, Side note, by the way, do y'all know what language this part of the Bible would have been written in? Have any people who study the Bible a little bit know some of those? Any of the, what are some of the languages that got Greek? The New Testament of the Bible was written in Greek, but this wasn't in Greece. Greece was a common language. Do y'all think that Mary and this angel were talking to each other in Greek? likely in Hebrew, possibly Aramaic. Very good, there's a couple of choices. Now Mary probably knew some Greek because that was common in their part of the world. She probably knew some Latin. And uh, a text we'll look at in a minute is known as the Magnificat because of the way it's rendered in the Latin Bible, Mary's Mary's, uh, speech that she gives, her song that she sings. The language that this was written in was Greek but even though Luke wrote it in Greek, we really don't have any reason to believe that Mary and this angel were speaking in Greek to one another. More likely it was Hebrew or Aramaic. So when we see this Greek word, charis, which is we get charity from it, that generosity, the Hebrew word that would correlate to that is, I'm going to try this, ken or kena. Now, the mercy word that we start to see used the Greek version is eleos, which is pity or compassion. And the Hebrew word that we see throughout our text, it would have been spoken in Hebrew, I believe, and it's translated, uh, it's translated eleos in Greek, but the Hebrew word is kesed. It's mercy or steadfast love, or this is uh, a covenant it's a covenant style love that God had for His people. It's based in, in promises and obligation and faithfulness. And so we see the angel bring up a specific covenant, in fact, in verse 31. The angel says, you will conceive in your womb, bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And then the angel says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's a very specific covenant. It's a promise that God made years ago to David in the book of 1 Samuel. I'll share that covenant with you. First Samuel chapter seven, verses twelve and twelve, uh, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for his name and for, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. And the verses continue. My mercy shall not depart from him and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This was a promise that the angel was reminding Mary of. And so Mary sees this and is thinking, okay, God is continuing in his steadfast love toward his people. He's going to keep his word. That's the God that we serve. And so Mary's response to this, in verse 38 of our main text, Mary said, behold the maidservant of the Lord. And the literal phrase there is, Behold, the Lord's slave. She calls herself His slave. Dulos is the original word, and it's stronger than just a a servant or the hired hand. She's saying, "Yes, God, you, you own me, and let it be done to me according to Your word." And she's honored. She's honored that the Lord would use His servant, bought out of slavery, bought out of Egypt. All the people of 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 Israel were, that he would show her this value, this honor. And so she says, let it be done to me according to your word. Behold your slave. So this is Mary's response. She hears this promise of God's steadfast love. And in section two, we see Mary's response to Elizabeth. Um, Some say that's her cousin. That's at least her kin, their family of some kind. And Elizabeth understands that there has been something magnificent to happen. The baby inside of her, John the Baptist, leaps at the sound of Jesus' mother. And we hear Mary's response in verse 46. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She recognizes salvation is of the Lord. And then in 48, she goes back to the same language she was using before. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, of his slave. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And then she brings in that Hebrew word, I believe, that old word. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy, his steadfast love. Uh, there's a there's a passage in the Bible, there are actually many passages. That word is a very commonly used word about God, but Psalm 136, the entire chapter, the entire Psalm is a repetition of this. We used to sing, well, I'll read the first verse. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever to him alone who does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. Do you all remember a song we used to, I don't know if you all have sung it in church or not. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King, his love endures forever. This same word is translated love. It's his steadfast love is the same thing to the people as his mercy. They don't see a real difference in this. This is the first of several references to mercy in our text today. Now, this is a New Testament word, but the speakers here were speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic. So when Mary is speaking of the mercy of God, she's speaking of this covenant mercy of endurance, of protection, of She's singing of God's willingness to keep his promises, and she does this in light of the promise that the angel shared that that the kingdom was going to be once again given to the rightful heir, that Jesus, as her son, was also son of her great-great-so-many-great-grandparents, and that he traces back to David, and the kingdom was going to be secure again. This is the expectation that God is going to keep a promise, not that he is going to give above and beyond what that promise was. We see that same word in the book of Lamentations. That same word, Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Great is his faithfulness. We sing that in our hymns as well. There is an expectation that God will protect and preserve his people. And so Mary is celebrating this. She's rejoicing that God is a God who is going to maintain his steadfast love and keep his word to his people. So in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. That doesn't sound like mercy to me, but it's mercy to his people, Israel, because he is keeping his word to the people. He says in verses, she says, excuse me, in verses 54 and 55, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, his steadfast love, the promise that he made that he was going to take care of his people that he was going to protect, that he was going to preserve, that he was going to provide. This was reflected in the promise that uh, God made to the forefathers back in Genesis chapter 17. Speaking to um, Abraham, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And also I give to you and your descendants after you, the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is what Mary understood to be the gift of grace that the angel was speaking about. But there are some, there's some pieces that are missing. We're going to look at that last section. Are y'all still with me? Holding up okay? All right. You're tracking. Am I making sense? Excellent. Let the word of God do its work. In section three, we see Zacharias's response. And by the way, we didn't read those verses, but um, when we see Elizabeth's response to her son being born, 58 says, when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. We see that same phrasing again among this Hebrew people. We don't see an understanding of grace, but we see an old understanding of mercy. So Zacharias says in verse 67, "Blessed!" Now the father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So he's speaking again of this promise that David's family was going to once again have the kingship they were looking for this this great leader to rise up to set them free from the people of rome to set this people free again and let them be sovereign in their own land and this is what what zacharias is telling them but look at what he says next he says that as he spoke by the mouth to make sure i'm in the right place in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved. But what's the what comes next? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, I'm just going to ask. I know that we, we live in a world where we know what's going on all around the world. Um, Has that happened for the people of Israel yet? No. No, that has not happened yet for the people of Israel. Now, the text we're reading says that Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. So we know that this is a prophecy that is going to come true because this is a prophecy that was ordained by God himself to be spoken. But this has not happened yet for the people of Israel. It hasn't. And so, we, and we too, we the church, anxiously await for the return of Jesus Christ to see him rule and reign on this earth and watch this world work the way it was designed to work. But as it stands, this portion of the prophecy was not fulfilled. So I want you to consider, we look at this, Zacharias is saying we should be saved from our enemies. But think about that angel Gabriel. He made another visit. And I don't want to steal away all the texts from Christmas, so I'm just going to refer back to this one. But the angel Gabriel came and spoke to Joseph, Mary's fiance. Now think about this. Mary was up here in the hill country with her cousin. She got a word from an angel that the Holy Spirit was going to somehow make her the father, or excuse me, make her the mother. She's not going to be the father. I, I know the difference. I do. Getting stumbled in my words up here. That the Holy Spirit was going to come upon her in some way, and she was going to be, she was going to conceive and bring forth a son. But Joseph, on the other hand, he's back home. His fiance's been away with family for three months, and she shows up pregnant. And he felt a little weird about that. The, the Bible tells us in so many words. He he wasn't really comfortable with this situation. She's been away. And she comes back expecting, and so he doesn't know what to do, and he's trying to find a nice way to, to maybe, kind of sweep this under the rug and let her go and be kind, but not, not embrace this thing that seemed to have been an immoral choice. It's what it looked like, and the angel shows up to him in Matthew chapter 20, 21, and or Matthew 1:21, and tells him to go ahead and marry her. Because the baby is God's, and he says, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? From their sins, yes. That's the gift. That's the understanding. That's the grace. This wasn't just a move of God's mercy of his loving kindness. He's offering something so much greater than the people could possibly understand. And so he tells Joseph, you got to marry this lady because this child is going to save his people from their sins. Now, this is not the relationship that Mary and Elizabeth and Zacharias were all talking about. They were talking about something entirely different. Zacharias continues in the prophecy in verse 72. He says that we should be uh, uh saved from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. We see that again. He's expecting a fulfillment of God's old promises. And he says in verses 74 and 75, paralleling the language that Mary was using to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives his understanding of what was happening with sin is that in their relationship with God, they were going to be able to serve him better. Even holiness and righteousness were seen in light of God's covenant with Israel. So when mercy is brought up by Mary, Elizabeth, and Zacharias, they're not speaking of that New Testament sense of the word that we see now. Remember, that's not getting something bad when you do deserve it. They're looking at mercy in that old, that Old Testament God fulfilling His arrangement promise to the nation so many long, so many years ago first spoken to the nation as a whole in Exodus chapter 19 before the 10 commandments were ever given. And God spoke to Moses, and I'm going to use 19 verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God said this to Moses to tell the people of Israel and in verse 8 of that same text, the people responded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They agreed with God that being a people for him meant their obedience And if they failed in their obedience, then there was going to be a strain on the relationship. That was Old Testament mercy. That was God's Old Testament chesed, as it's called, C-H-E-S-C-D, or c h something like that, chesed. It's hard to say and hard to spell, apparently. Mercy to them meant God would preserve them and provide for them. He would keep them at arm's length from his anger. He wasn't going to let them get quite so close that he could reach out and snatch them up. He kept them at bay, and as a faithful provider, he would make sure that they as a people survived. Has he done that? They've still survived. Yes, he has protected them as a people. This was in relationship to their servant-slave relationship with God. They recognized that he bought them out of the land of Egypt. They were a, they were an enslaved people and he took possession and he protected them. And it means a lot to them that he is going to be their provider. And with that, that means they're going to get some land. They had no idea that this promise of God, they had no idea that the courier of God's mercy, Jesus Christ, would also be the courier of his grace. They had no idea that Jesus was going to be the conduit of God's mercy and grace at the same time. They had no idea what was being promised, what was being offered in Christ. Last week, I believe you read in uh, Romans chapter five that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Their sense of God's kindness was based on being a covenant people protected by God, given land for a future in the minds of an enslaved people brought out from egypt this was as good as it gets you think about that a people who had nothing who had nothing to their names who were forced to do the work of pharaoh being taken out and said you know what i'm taking you to a land that flows with milk and honey they're thinking man this is going to be great and we're going to stay this way forever and you're going to give us a king and no one's ever going to put us out of this kingdom? That was the promise that they expected. They were so caught up in survival mode that they did not realize that their true need was the need that Gabriel told Joseph, for he shall save his people from, from their sins. Hallelujah. Amen. All that time. All that time from generation to generation, God protected that people. He protected them from the destruction that they earned through their own sin. Remember, in Lamentations, it is by the Lord's mercy we are not consumed. They could not imagine that something better than the covenant was being offered. They didn't see it. All they saw here when we see mercy in this text is God's going to keep his word about all that old stuff he promised and that's going to be great because it's better than what we had. They had no clue to the generosity of God. Hebrews chapter 11, the end of the passage called the Hall of Faith, speaks of all these Old Testament folks that were serving God faithfully, and the Bible says that all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. All those folks had to wait for something better. The promise that God gave them was a placeholder. I want you to think about that. That promise he gave them of being that peculiar people, zealous of good works, that promise he gave them of having a king over the land and they would have a space for themselves, it was just a placeholder for something rich beyond their understanding. Their sense of Old Testament mercy meant God would keep his word But Jesus was not given as a gift to keep things the same, church. Jesus was not given as a gift to keep things the same. He was not just routine maintenance. Jesus was above and beyond. Jesus was what was extra of God. Jesus is immeasurable compared to the promises that God had made so many years ago. That's the comparison of Old Testament mercy with New Testament grace. So what about New Testament mercy? What does that mean for us? That's that, the word eleos that Luke used. Now, if God had this Bible written in Greek, then that word is relevant because God chose those words in the original manuscripts. So what do we know about mercy? That Greek word is talking about um, a compassionate, a pitying... Um, protection of people, providing to someone who's in need. Now, God providing mercy is protecting against his own anger and his own wrath. Things I want you to take away about mercy today. Mercy is always balanced against judgment. Mercy is only needed from God when a person is at fault or is guilty. So mercy is always going to be balanced it's never just abundant, abundant, and abundant. In fact, mercy always has a net zero value. God's holiness does not permit sin to exist unchallenged. So God in mercy may extend or defer punishment, but mercy is directly related to what we deserve that is bad. It's directly related to the sin that we have committed. It's directly related to the holy debt that we owe before God. Sometimes mercy does come in the form of deferred punishment. God often postpones or delays punishment instead of immediate retribution. Think about this one. How different would the world be if right after our first lie we told, our tongue was removed? we'd be in a quiet place we would be in a quiet place i'd have to get up here and just point to the words on the screen because i couldn't tell them to you because i couldn't talk but would it be just for god to want the tongue that is made in his own image to sound like his image and never be dishonest god would have that right God would be within his rights. It would be just for him to do so because his creation was designed to make him visible. But sometimes God defers our punishment. Mercy, that idea of not getting something bad when you deserve it, and grace, getting something good that you don't deserve, those two words, mercy and grace, They're blurred in the person of Jesus Christ because God's plan for the ages required him to be central to both. God's plan for the ages required Jesus to be central to both of those. Isaiah 53, a passage normally we hear at Easter time, for my twice-a-year folks, you may know this one. (laughs) Isaiah 53, uh, verses 4 through 6, surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And down in verse 10, the Bible says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The plan of the ages was that that servant prophesied 700 years before his own birth that that servant would bear the sin of his people. That he would carry that burden. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus was the object of mercy for us. Mercy is shown to us because the debt for our sin is paid in Christ. We make his soul an offering for sin. So how does God show us mercy? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us, the old Bible says, has quickened us together with Christ. He's raised us up to life together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And that was the promise of that angel. Amen. That was the promise that that angel tried to tell them. That there was a, there was a work of grace coming. Yes, this would fulfill the old promises, but it was so much bigger, so much greater than the promises that God had made to the people. God deferred our judgment until a way could be made to pay for the sin of all. God didn't hold us accountable for our first sin when we committed it, or the second one, or the third one, or the fourth one but he showed patience, he showed kindness, he showed steadfast love in honor of the promise that he made back in Isaiah, that his son would be offered as a sacrifice for sin. God deferred our judgment till he could pay for the sin of all. So for those in ages past, we read that they had to wait for the fulfillment of the promise in order to have their judgment deferred, then transferred to Jesus. For us now, For us now, the price is simple. The wages of sin is death. We are made from the dust of the earth. That's the dust that God created. He spoke it into existence. So who owns the dust? God owns the dust and God can do with it what he wants. The Bible says that even the heavens declare the glory of God. His dust is supposed to also. And if we don't if we don't show him, we, if we don't re- reflect him, if we don't transmit him, if we don't make him visible, then we're we're broken and we are not worthy of being kept. We're not worthy. But when we were dead in sin, God didn't just consume us. He made a way through Jesus Christ to mercifully defer and transfer our debt to the only one who could pay. I'll close with Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I was worried when I found out that Josh was going to be in Romans 5 as well. The Bible tells us, For when we were still without strength, in time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The object of God's grace becomes the object of God's mercy. They too are one. Until the way could be made for us to embrace him as Savior, God shows mercy. So how does this play out for us, church? And this is the close of service. I don't know if we have musicians that do things at this point. If that's so, that's fine. I'll keep it kind of real and just say, let's keep it. Let's keep moving. So what does this, what does this mean for the church? What does this mean for you out there? What does this mean for anybody who might be listening at home later? Well, God has shown you grace and he has shown you mercy. He was patient with you while you were living in a time of sin. So for those who are the church, those who are on the inside, I want you to reflect this season on the abundant grace and the abundant mercy that your Savior has shown to you. And I hope that that is something that you will pass along also to those you meet, because we are designed to reflect him. And so I encourage you, I exhort you, church, if you're someone who is a part of church, maybe you're twice a year. Maybe you show up sometimes. Maybe you sit in this seat every single week. But God is not moving in your life. Maybe your life in this building looks different than your life at home or at work or at school. Maybe you don't look like the same person. I, I call y'all fringe people. the Fringe Christians. You're on the edge of Christianity. You know what it means. You know the talk. You know how to make it sound. But Is God working in your life right now? Are you aware? of the mercy and grace that he has shown you? Are you aware of the wages of living apart from God? Yet God has made a way to reconcile himself to man through the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you of that and encourage you to draw closer to God, draw nigh unto God, draw nigh unto you. And for the one among us who may not know Jesus, He's made a way. There's nothing that you've done that can be greater than the mercy of God. The mercy of God is one life for one life. And it's not held to you because Christ paid the debt for you if you will only embrace it and accept it. And the grace that he has to offer is so much better than anything you could ever, you could ever fathom. The grace of God isn't like his mercy. It doesn't have a limit. It's boundless, infinite, matchless grace we see. That's our Savior Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus today, I hope that you will you'll talk with me or talk with one of the one of the elders, one of the leaders among the church. Talk to me and I'll help you with that. If that's something that God is stirring in your heart and drawing you to himself, don't leave today without knowing that Christ has called you to be a part of his family.
0: Hey, thank you so much for listening. It, it means the world to me that you would take the time to listen to our sermons. If, you, if you'd if you like to connect with us, shoot us an email at office at HopeChurchMillCreek.com. That's office at HopeChurchMillCreek.com. Or just come by for a service in person, 1030 a.m. Sunday mornings. Address is 1562 Mill Creek Road, Roxboro, North Carolina. Uh, I would love to meet you in person. And um, I guess that's all for now. So don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you would kindly. We pray that you'd have a great day. Uh, For Hope Church Mill Creek, I'm Pastor Josh. Grace and peace.